Good morning, everyone. There we go. Make your way in and find a seat. I'd love for you to keep talking, but we're already at after 11, and so we better get moving. If you're new here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central, and uh, we certainly hope that you feel welcome here with us. Before we jump into our text and continue on in our series in Esther, I have uh, a few things uh, to pass on. It's been a weekend of exciting news, so we might as well keep rolling on that front, right? So first off, uh, Jenny just wanted me to pass on that we have all our drivers for sandwich runs, so we're always asking for help in that department, and she had her volunteers early in the week, and she just wanted to thank God, and so we do, and we thank you, and we praise God for that. Also, uh, as many of you know, over the last few years, we've been uh, blessed by having the Ahuka family uh, with us from Burundi, and uh, you also know, uh, if you're uh, connected with them, a bit of their situation where We've got a family, but we've got four spouses still in Africa in various parts there. And if you remember back in the spring, we gathered uh, at a special prayer meeting on a Friday night and at TAG and praying just for God to work in those situations. And we've been meeting with some immigration people and we've been filling out forms and whatnot and helping in whatever way we can. And this Monday, I got an email from Kinyanga to say that He's been approved to bring Pamela over. <laughs> and that to expect her in four to 12 months. And so after it will be years and it will be this long and it won't happen and all this, God steps in, he gets the email, and I Skyped with him this week and he was just one big happy smile and full of faith and praising God and so he wanted me to pass that on to you guys and just uh, so that you can join him in celebrating that with him. And so God is at work. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for what you've done uh, in Kenyanga and Pamela's situation. We just pray, Father, that you would see this through, that you would bless them, that you would guard their hearts and give them a peace that goes beyond their understanding in this situation, and we look forward to rejoicing with them as Kinyanga and Pamela are reunited as husband and wife. And we pray, Father, for, uh, for Edie, and we pray for Ramadan, and we pray for Fabrice that you would work in the same way. We know, Father, that you are a God who is able, and so we put our faith and our trust in you. As we come to your word this morning, Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit that your spirit would make your word living and active in our hearts this morning. We pray, Father, that you would lead and guide us as you see fit this morning for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> All right, Kenyonga's recent events are fitting because as you see this morning, uh, we're getting near the end of our series on Esther and our title this morning is until the tables turn. And so we've got to read a big chunk this morning, uh, but let me bring you up to speed at where we're at with Esther. So Esther is the story of a Jewish orphan who becomes the queen of Persia. While she's the queen, the villain Haman convinces the king to make a decree to annihilate all the Jews in the Persian Empire. 
And this is a problem for Esther because even though she's hidden it, uh, she herself is Jewish, Jewish. And she meets up with her cousin Mordecai, who is the father figure in her life, and he tells her, you know, you need to take advantage of the position that you're in and turn this thing around. And if you don't, all your people will be killed and probably you too. It's not an overly encouraging message, but that's basically what he says. And Esther says, yes, she says, even if I perish, if I perish, I perish. And uh, she begins to make a plan uh, to influence the king. So as we saw a few weeks ago, she prepares a feast. She invites Haman and the king to it. And at that feast, she invites them to another feast. And in between those two feasts, as we saw a couple weeks ago, everything begins to flip. And God uses one sleepless night by the king to begin to turn the tables for Esther and Mordecai and Haman and all the Jewish nation. So this morning we pick things up as Haman and the king come to the second feast of Esther. And we're going to read quite a bit, so hang with me. And for some strange reason, I tend to get out of breath when I'm reading more so than when you're just talking. It's a strange thing. But So here we go. We'll begin this, the, the last verse there in 14, uh, or in chapter 6, verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what, she was, what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews." 
when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own language <clears throat> and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of the king Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a, golden, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday and many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. So there's a lot of information there. A lot happened. But um, from the end of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 9, pretty much everything flips. So everything is turned. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we did that chart of the, the pattern in Esther. We just flew up the backside. Okay? Everything has flipped. So Esther is kind of the living definition of turning the tables, 
So what is low is brought high. What is high is brought low. Death is brought to life. Life is brought to death. Weeping is turned to rejoicing. All the tables are turned. And when I read it, when you read it, at least for me, I have two things that go through my head. And I don't know uh, what goes through your head, but one thing is I start to get swelled with excitement as well. We all love a good comeback story. So when I read it, I thought of the 2004 Boston Red Sox. Being a Red Sox fan, get an amen from Cyril, he's not here. 2004 Red Sox, they sweep the Angels, they go in to face the great foe of the New York Yankees, they go down three games, it looks like it's all over, and then all of a sudden everything starts to flip, and Kurt Schilling's pitching with the bloody sock, and people are stealing bases, and just when you think it's over, Ortiz hits a home run, and I remember watching it in uh, Karen's apartment in 2004, we were just friends then, those tables had not yet turned. <laughs> And, and just being on the edge of your seat, and you just think, well, yeah, they'll win one game, but was, are they really going to win the series? And then they win two, and then they win three, and it goes to game seven, and you're like, well, can they actually win the series? And they do that, and then they go to the World Series, and they sweep the Cardinals, and it's just, phew, everything flips. And so when I read Esther, and you see everything starts to turn, there's Cyril, there he is, he's starting to get emotional, so we better move on from that analogy. But when I read that, everything starts to swell up and you kind of get caught up and you want to, you want to rejoice with the Jews. And, and they want to as well. We'll see that next week. They establish a whole festival just so they can rejoice uh, consistently over this event. But also, when I read that, and you see this whole situation turn on its head and you see all the tables being turned, for me at least, you can't help but sit down and look at, some own, at your own situations in your own life where you've got tables that need to be turned, where you've got situations that you need God to intervene in. And so, this morning, all of us have things in our lives uh, personally and even corporately as a body where we need the tables to be turned. We need a decree to be revoked. We need walls to fall down. Whatever analogy you want to new use, we need our Hamans to be hanged, figuratively speaking, of course. But we need some tables to be turned in our own life. And so this morning, we are going to look at until the tables turn. We'll look at what that process is like, and hopefully we can answer three questions this morning as we see Esther's situation. What do we do? Where do we look? And who is with us? And I have one slide this morning, so... First, what do we do? So the process is quite interesting from chapters 5 to 7. At the end of chapter 4, Esther makes her decision. Then chapter 5 and chapter 7, she puts her plan into action. Sandwiched between those two chapters, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, is chapter 6, where Esther isn't even mentioned, and the whole story flips 
on God sovereignly working over a king and his sleepless night. And so we have these three chapters that give us a clear picture that when it comes to tables being turned, when it comes to situations, uh, difficult situations being turned around, we have a role and God has a role in it all. So we see the interplay between God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. So nobody would look at the story of Esther and see see what we saw two weeks ago about how it all flips on Esther 6.1. Nobody would then look at that and say, well, why is Esther making plans and doing feasts and doing all that? That's pointless, right? God flipped it all in Esther 6.1. You don't look at the story and say that. You see how integral uh, Esther's plan is to bringing about that resolution. But as we saw two weeks ago at the same time, it all flips on God's sovereign work of Esther 6.1. Everything is heading downhill. The king has a sleepless night and everything turns around. And if you look at Psalm 127, 127 contains a very popular verse that says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Most of you probably know that verse. Your grandmother probably had it on a cross stitch in the entryway, right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain, which is true. Unless the Lord builds the house, all your efforts to build are pointless. They are in vain. They are nothing. But here in Esther, we see the counterpart to that, which is unless you labor, the house doesn't get built right? So sometimes we're guilty of coming at our situations with the attitude of, if it's going to be, it's going to be me, and we put it all on our shoulders, and we figure things out, and we plan, and we toil, and we strive, and we sweat, and if this thing is going to happen, if this situation is going to be turned around, if this obstacle is going to be overcome, it's on me. And then a good friend comes in and says, Why are you doing all that work? All you need to do is just sit back and relax and let God build the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's all in vain. Just have a seat. But neither of those approaches are what we see here in Esther or what we actually read in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's both. All our best laid plans will never come to pass unless the Lord blesses them, unless the Lord works. And so, Psalm 127 doesn't say, have a seat, God's going to build the house. And it also doesn't say, get to work and get the house built. It's all on you. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, they are laboring, they are building, will build in vain. So when we look at our own situation, we need the action of chapters 5 and 7 all the while and trusting and praying and relying on God to work His chapter 6. You see what I'm saying? We have the planning and the preparation and the action of Esther in 5 and 7, but we realize that it's all in vain unless we have chapter 6 the ultimate work of God that brings results. So following God 
and facing situations and obstacles and difficulties is always both and. It's always praying and action. It's always pressing on and pressing in to God. It's always pressing on. What do I need to do? It might be a big thing that requires a lot of courage. It might just be that you need to get across the street and uh, ask your neighbor for forgiveness. But there's action. There's pressing on that you need to do. And we press in. We press in to God. We seek Him in prayer. We want to hear from Him. We cry out to Him. Desire His presence because we know that unless God turns the tables, the tables are not getting turned. So maybe this morning you've got some tables that need to be turned. Maybe the table that you need turned is your marriage. When you read Esther and you see everything that is, be, that is off being set right, when you see death being turned to life, you look at the person next to you and you say, that's what we need. We need the tables to be turned in our marriage. And so my, my advice is press in because you need God to do a work in your heart and in their heart. But that doesn't mean you carry on with the same patterns and the same habits and the same routines. You press on whatever that might be. It might be writing a note or holding her hand or going out for a meal. You know, it might be something simple, but you can't just carry on in the same routines and the same habits and just say, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying for God to work. At the same time, there's changes you need to make, but you need to press in to God because unless God works a miracle in your heart and in their heart, the tables are not being turned. So we press in, relying on God, and we press on knowing that we have a part to play. Second, where do we look? Where do we look? The first place we look is to today. So when we look at our situation, at our difficult circumstance, whatever it might be, the thing that keeps us really from pressing on and pressing in is usually fear. Fear over what might happen. Fear over future possible events. And oftentimes, how we act is driven by our perceptions of what might lie ahead of us in the future rather than reality. And so oftentimes, those decisions result in sin. And the crazy thing is, is that they're decisions that are driven by things that sometimes don't ever come to pass. And so in Esther's life, we saw in chapter 2 that she hides her Jewishness. She compromises out of fear. And then a few years later, a few chapters later, in chapter 7, she reveals her Jewishness in faith and nothing bad happens at all. In fact, a lot of good happens. And so, yeah, it's just speculation, but it's helpful to look and say, well, she did all that in chapter 2 and hid all that, but if she revealed it, I wonder if all this craziness with Haman and decrees and annihilation would have even happened at all. If it all went well in chapter 7, who's to say it wouldn't have all went well in chapter 2? So you see what I'm saying. We have this sneaky way of assuming 
that the path will cause us the least trouble is the path of disobedience. That obeying God will make things messy. And it's true, sometimes obeying God will be difficult and it will be a difficult path. But we shouldn't have fear about possible future events and let those things dictate our behavior for today and lead us into sin and disobedience of God. The enemy loves to use that fear from, to keep us from pressing on and pressing in to God, from doing the very things that God has called us to. So we look back at our own life. How much time have we spent worrying about things that never happened? How has the fear of the future cramped our generosity? How has fear of the future strangled our service for others? How much are we looking ahead and afraid and terrified of things that might happen but might not? And how much is that affecting how we're living today? So why in the world do we think Jesus says, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's about today. And yes, we need to plan and we need to prepare and life insurance is probably a good thing. Don't hear what I'm not saying, right? But James says that even when we talk positively about tomorrow, that that's boasting. We shouldn't have our eyes fixed too far ahead on the hundreds of possible outcomes. And besides the foolishness of fretting over things that might happen, we should have our eyes fixed on today when we're thinking about these things that we need the tables turned in because God is able to turn those tables today. He is a God who is able to turn those tables today. He is able to turn events in an instant. Look how everything changed so quickly in Esther. One day, Haman goes to the king early in the morning, and he's riding a high horse, and in a few hours, he's hanging on a high gallows. It turns in an instant. So do we believe that God can turn our situations in an instant? Do we believe that? When we look at our situations, we see things that we need turned in our life. Do we believe that God can turn it today? Do we believe that God can turn it around today? Or have we boxed him in to our timeline and our calendar and our diary? God is not limited by those things. He created time. He is not limited by time. He can turn things in an instant. And as Don said Friday night, as only Don can say, Abel, our God is almighty. Right? Our God is almighty. He is almighty over your situation. Do you believe that He's almighty over your situation? Or have you written out His power over your situation? Esther and Mordecai were as good as dead. And like that, God intervened and turned it around. 
The thief was a bloody mess on the cross heading for a Christless eternity. And like that, he receives the life-giving promise, today you will be with me in paradise. In an instant, the early church was shaking in their boots as Paul roamed the countryside with his murderous threats. And on the road to Damascus, he's turned into the greatest missionary they'd ever known. So did he do that just then? Or is he not able to do that today? And that's why we keep our eyes on today. We have the anticipation that, God, that today God could work and change it around. That God works in this situation. That this relationship could be restored. That this pain could be healed. That he works here and there and here and there in an instant. But with that, we keep an eye on today. We also keep an eye on eternity. We keep an eye on eternity. Why? Because when God's timing doesn't line up with our timing, we need the assurance that one day every table will be turned. Every table will be turned. Everything will come under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And even if our table is not turned and our difficult situation is not overcome as, Christi as Christians, we have the unshakable, unsinkable hope of future glory when all will be set right. It will turn. It will turn at death or at Jesus' return. And so as Christians, death has no sting because Jesus has removed its sting and turned death into the ultimate table turner, right? We're not going to be swallowed up in death. Death will be swallowed up in victory. It will be swallowed up in victory, in victory, in victory. So where do we look? We look to today and we look to eternity. We don't dwell out there in vague, uh, you know, a vague future with hundreds of possible outcomes and perceptions of what might happen. That's just a breeding ground for fear in our lives. We keep our eyes on today. We're not anxious for tomorrow. And we live with the anticipation that God is mighty to work today. That in an instant, the tables can be turned. And we keep an eye on eternity when everything will be set right. So as a Christian, I can confidently, 100%, say to you this morning that if you're a Christian, your best days are ahead of you. I can say it might get better tomorrow. I can say with confidence it will get better. I can say it will get better. And when it gets better, it will be better for eternity. That your momentary afflictions are storing up for you an eternal weight of glory that does not compare to what you're going through today. Third question. Who is with us? So what do we do? We press on. We press in to God. We keep our eyes on today. We keep our eyes on eternity. And we need to ask ourselves, in this difficult situation I'm in, who is with me? And the answer to that question is the most comforting, motivating answer in the world. Because the answer to that question is that God is with us. That the living, almighty, creator, God himself 
is with us. We don't have a king like Xerxes who loves us today and leaves us tomorrow. Haman's riding high. He's second with Xerxes, their best buddies, and he's gone, right? Vashti's his wife. They're together like that. She's banished. You're gone. Love you today. Leave you tomorrow. That's not the king that we come to. We come to a king who is also our heavenly father, who promises to never leave us or forsake us, who promises to provide, who promises to protect, who promises to supply our every need, who says that with him all things are possible, who says that if he is for us, who can be against us, who promises to not lose one of us. God is not like Xerxes. God is the anti-Xerxes. He is the anti-Xerxes. His love never fails. His mercy endures forever. He is patient. He sings over us in love. He is faithful. 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 And some of us this morning need to hear God say to you, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. You've been sitting there in your difficult circumstances and you've been waiting for God to say, I give up. I'm turning my back on you. You're a failure. I'm done. I'm wasting my time with you. You need to hear God say this morning, I'm not going anywhere. I am not Xerxes. I am the faithful king. I am the faithful, faithful king. I began a good work in you and I've tied myself to the promise that I will carry it on to completion. He is not the fickle Emperor Xerxes. He is the faithful, faithful heavenly King Jesus. And it's a relationship that isn't built on us. That's why God can say those things. Esther comes to the king over and over and over, and she says what? If I have found favor in your sight, we come to God not by saying, if I have found favor in your sight, but God, if Jesus has found favor in your sight. That's why the relationship is so strong. If Jesus has found favor in your sight. And the answer to that question is a resounding, loud, yes, he has. Yes, he has. God is with us because the completed work of Jesus and we are now in Christ, and Christ has found favor with God. And the verse that's been rolling around in my head for the last few weeks is from Joshua, Joshua 1.9, where God says, Have I not commanded it? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence with us comes with the command to be courageous, to not fear, to press on. And we know it's difficult, and we know it's hard, and we know that you have ample reason to worry. But God says, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, 
be strong, be courageous, and you say, how can I do that? How can I not be frightened and not be dismayed and not be discouraged when I look at this situation in my life where I need the tables to be turned? How can I be strong and courageous and keep pressing on and keep pressing in? And we try to look for a list of 25 reasons about why that should be the case, and God gives us one big, hefty, beefy, rugged, firm promise. He says, I am with you. It's one reason. We look for a 10-step process and we look for, I need all these reasons about why I can be strong and courageous. And he gives us the sheet and it has 150-point font and it says, I am with you. Period. That's the reason that we can be strong and courageous. That God is with us. So when we look at these situations, whatever they might be, that we need the tables to be turned, the difficult situations, we know we keep our eyes on today. We keep our eyes on eternity. We press on. We have action that we need to do. We press in to God. And we remind ourselves, who is with us? God is with us. Esther and Mordecai and the whole Jewish nation needed some tables to be turned. And God did it. And when you look at your own life, you've undoubtedly have some things that you're going through where you're saying, I need God to turn the tables on this. I need God to change the trajectory of this relationship. I need God to step in here. I need God to flip this around. He is able. He is able. You look at Kinyanga's situation. He is able. He is able. After being told it'll be many years, it'll be off, it's not even a possibility, Monday morning, approved. She'll be here in 4 to 12 months. So if you're weak and you're laying down on your hospital bed, put Kinyanga's story in the IV bag and let it drip some faith into you. In your personal situations, God is with you and He's able to turn the tables in an instant. But for us as a church, we need some tables to be turned. Do we not? We need some tables to be turned. This isn't just individual application. Corporately, we need some tables to turn. So in the last few days and weeks, we've had many prophetic words about a new season of experiencing the presence of God. We've had uh, prophetic words about new seasons of worship and, and God's power and His presence with us. We need that to come to fulfillment. We need that. We need God to show up in power. Me personally, I cannot live on stories from two decades ago. We need God's presence showing up in power. We need the tables to turn. We praise God for salvation yesterday at our Holy Spirit Day, right in our building, 487 Brunswick Street. God stepped down and brought life where there was death. We praise God for that. It's funny, we think God can't change our situation, but yesterday I saw Him change someone's eternity. I saw with my bare eyes, 
I saw someone's eternity changed in an instant. And we think that he can't change our little circumstances here on earth. He changed your eternity. He can change that little thing that's going on. <clears throat> so we praise God for that. But we need the tables to be turned as far as our impact in this city and the good news of Jesus bringing life and the kingdom of God to the four corners of Fredericton. We need the tables to be turned on salvations in this city and people coming to know and enjoy and worship and love Jesus Christ. We have a good setup here at Devon Middle. We've got a piece of land. We've got a building, 487 Brunswick Street, but we need the tables to be turned on our long-term home. We need the tables to be turned. On and on it goes. We need God to turn the tables in our lives and together as a local church moving forward to what God has called us, we need God to turn the tables on some situations. And as I read through this passage this week, it really struck me that in Esther 7, in chapter 7, Esther's working out her plan, and it's detailed, and it's precise, and she carries it through. When you get to Esther 8, verse 3, the plan is gone. She throws herself at the feet of the king, and she weeps and pleads in desperation. We can have all our best laid plans, and there's a time for uh, mapping things out and preparation and detail. There's a time to throw ourselves at the king, at the feet of the king, and weep and plead in desperation for the tables to be turned. We have a much better king than Xerxes. We have a much better king that we throw ourselves at. Will we be desperate to call out to God for these things? We want to see an impact in this city. I praise God for one yesterday, but it in no way makes me satisfied. We want to see the kingdom of God break out into Fredericton. And so there's a time for planning, like Esther 7. There's a time to throw ourselves at the feet of the king and plead for him to work. Why don't we stand up? <clears throat> Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So are we laboring? Right? We want to labor. We don't want to just be sitting on the couch. We want to labor. But are we pleading and trusting and relying and throwing ourselves at the God who, unless He builds the house, we labor in vain? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit meeting here with us. And we uh, thank You for what You did uh, for the Jewish nation so long ago. We praise You that You turned those tables. And as we look through history, we just see table after table after table being turned. We see the thief on the cross. We see things changed in an instant. We see Paul changed in an instant. We see Kenyanga last week. The situation changed in an instant. So we just pray this morning, Father, that you would raise our faith 
that you're a God who is able, that you're a God who knows no restrictions, that you're a God who is able to work mightily, that you are mighty to save. We pray, Father, that you'd restore to us the joy of our salvation. Give us a clear view of what you did in our life, uh, whether it was yesterday or whether it was 50 years ago. We see the great power of your salvation that changed our eternity in an instant. So we pray, Father, that you would raise our faith this morning when we look at the difficult situations personally in our lives, whether they're relationally or physically or whatever they might be, Father, we pray that you would help us to press in to you, knowing that unless you work, that we labor in vain. But help us to press on. Help us to be actively uh, working towards what you have called us to. We keep our eyes on today, knowing that you can work. We keep our eyes on eternity, knowing that you will bring everything right one day. And we pray, Father, that you would help us as a church, with all these things that are in front of us, we praise you for Friday night and all the things that we see you are doing. And we just say this morning, you need to turn some tables. And so we come this morning, we thank you that you are an infinitely greater and better king than Xerxes, but we come like Esther and we plead at your feet and we say, great table turner, can you turn some tables for us. We pray for a building. We pray for our impact in this city. We pray for salvations. We pray for the kingdom of God to break out. We pray, Father, that you would work in these situations, that you would work and accomplish your plans and your purposes. And we pray that we would be like Joshua, that you would speak to us and you would say, I am with you. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you wherever you go. We pray that you would seal that in our hearts, that we would not be motivated by fear. We would not hold back by fear, but we would go in faith knowing that our God is mighty to save and our God is with us forever. We praise you for who you are. Amen.